1: Thank you, JJ, for that introduction. And I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. We are now in about 53 countries, which I am really excited about because what it tells me and what it tells our listeners is that people want the message of hope. They want to hear that there is hope in hopeless circumstances. And so many of my guests have been in hopeless circumstances, have survived trauma that sometimes seems almost humanly unbearable, and yet they have, and they didn't stay there, but instead they have a story of victory over this, of overcoming multiple circumstances that could have easily destroyed them with me today is someone that fits that bill exactly first of all i want to thank you for your comments for your um, emails for um, your sharing of this show because that is what makes it a success you are the show you as listeners and my awesome guests thank you with me today is roxanne foley She wrote a memoir entitled, But I Liked It, and Other Lies. That's an intriguing title. Now, this book is her experience as a victim of physical, mental, and sexual abuse. Today, Roxanne is going to share how she has been completely restored by the health and freedom that comes from knowing the truth and rejecting all the lies that may hold us captive and hopeless because of abuse. This is huge, and it's going to be... I know it's a subject that's very near and very dear to Roxanne's heart, and she is going to share that journey with us. She said that she has gone from longing for death, and I know there's people that can relate to that, to loving life, from debilitating depression where you don't think you can put one foot in front of the other, to being one of the happiest people she knows. She wants us to know that if this happened to her, it can also happen to you. Welcome, Roxanne. Thank you. So nice to have you here. And where are you coming from today? Where do you live?
2: Kalamazoo, Michigan,
1: and I was raised in Michigan. What's your wow. what? <laughs> love Michigan. What, what kind of weather are you having there today?
2: It is a thunderstorm right now. April showers oh, are that's, a little early. That's <laughs> right.
1: I was going to say, is it April Fools? No, that's tomorrow.
2: That's tomorrow, <laughs> but we're getting a head start on this. I mean, it is a drenching downpour.
1: Okay. Well, the plants need it, maybe.
2: <laughs> yeah, it'll of course. <laughs> it's spring yes it is
1: okay in your bio that you sent me Roxanne you said that you were married to the same man for 42 years and only the last nine have been happy that's quite a statement and, we're, and I want you to address that um, as you as you uh, share with us today but we need to start from the beginning okay so when did your abuse start and how did it affect your life
2: I was physically abused my entire life and groomed at a very early age to be sexually abused, I believe. My memory of being sexually abused begins at the age of 11. But at the age of 7, if someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I told them either a nun or a stripper. And my mom, and everybody laughed. And my mom right. would say, ask Roxanne what she wants to be when she grows up, because it got such a laugh. Right. That was like a a red flag that nobody even caught on to. But so why, how would I know what a stripper is? So, and my sister has also um, told me that she has memories of me trying to tell her about this good feeling And she said it was way before you were 11. So, but my memory begins at 11.
1: And so what happened?
2: It happened that I was, I had been very sick, very ill with hepatitis. Uh, Another story, a neighbor dropped me headfirst into a septic tank. (gasps) But I recovered from that, but I... I still was like ill and sometimes I stayed home from church because I was too tired to go or something I don't know but anyway it was a day that I was home alone with my dad and he asked me to sit on his lap and read him a story about Noah's Ark and I I tell that in, in the book you know the story I remember the images and all that and and just Uh, then he he showed, he was so gentle and showed such concern for my health. And he was worried that maybe this day I had German measles. And so he wanted to check my chest and other areas of my body for a rash. And again, he was just, the touch was instead of a, a blow, you know, it was gentle and kind and loving. And I liked it. I remember being embarrassed to show him my chest in my pubic area, but I didn't even know that's what it was called. But um but he touched me and it was very soft and gentle and, and not bad at all compared to a slap or a hit or a punch, which is the only touch I'd ever known from him before. So he was just totally out of character, being loving and kind, and I bought a hook, line and sinker. So the next time the next week I decided I was sick again and I stayed home on purpose so just so I could have that one on one with him and um that was the time that he asked me to read him a story and then from there I I don't know I just remember um him telling me about an experience he had with a girl when he was in Korea and um she was given to him to be used, and he was, he would not do that, but he gave her a good feeling. And would I like that good feeling? Uh. And, um, he touched me between my legs with his toe, and I'm like, okay. So on my lap, on his lap, I went, and I got that good feeling. And I liked it. And so I, um, you know, and now I know, of course, it's preferable to a punch, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, that that really, you know, the fact that I was so willing and so easy and went back for it and asked for it and, you know, really felt like a co-perpetrator rather than um, a victim. Okay. And so I, I grew up. Believing that I was an evil freak because every other abuse story I'd ever heard of, the girls all hated it. So there definitely was something wrong with me that I did not hate it. And therefore, I couldn't get help because every time someone tried to help me, because I was very messed up. What works as a child, you know, what you tell yourself as a child and what gets you through, does not work once you're an adult. And so I was very messed up adult and really didn't have a memory of the abuse until after I was married. So my poor husband thought he was getting a good Catholic girl. And I didn't even, you know, we didn't even have sex before marriage. <laughs> so it's, it's, I'm just like, but again, I also had dissociative identity disorder. I had like five personalities. And so... You know, I have different memories coming from different perspectives of different identities. And uh, those went away when I went through my DBT, Post Traumatic Stress Disorder Counseling. I am one person now. All my memories are integrated. And it's just, I don't know what happened, shattered my personalities and um, my personality to five and I know that some have many more than that, but I just seemed to be able to identify five. And they were at different ages, and so their memories were different. And, but they all um, wanted to die. That was one thing they had in common. So that was what I struggled with. And after I got married, I um, struggled with being intimate with my husband. And I
1: was it because of guilt?
2: It it must have been must have been because I just didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel worthy. I never felt real. I didn't know what was real. I was believing lies. And so I didn't know what was truth.
1: Now, the lies that you were believing, were they self-inflicted, like uh, what you just said, I am not worthy, I was bad? Absolutely um, okay. not. Not, and, okay. Yeah. So where did well, they come from?
2: My father told me that I liked it. My father told me that um, I asked for it, I wanted it, that that's what I was made for. And so I had those that I was believing and then also the the lies from Satan, where you are hopeless and you are worthless and you will never get better and you will never be normal. And um, just depending on the day, the lies were just consuming.
1: And when they do that, what happens is, it, well, exactly, they not only consume your life, but it throws you into a depression as well. Because exactly. it's incredibly hard to cope, right? Yes. Yeah. So well, your coping skills, if I'm hearing you correctly, are dividing you yourself into different personalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did that help you? And and I realize that it took counseling for you to, to come through that. But at, mm-hmm. the, at the time, were you getting relief by becoming somebody else?
2: Actually, I wasn't aware that I was being different people until until the counseling and and I guess during sessions I would dissociate and act differently and then I wouldn't have memory of things that we'd talked about and and so it just turned out like and and I also would be very immature you know I would act around four sometimes I acted 11 and that's how they decided you know that I had these okay you know but um that's, that gets kind of confusing because it's hard to remember what, it's just hard to remember the sequences. So I will just go back to the fact that the, the, my coping mechanism was to think about dying all the time. That was the way I dealt. In fact, when I would watch a TV show where someone struggled, I, my first thought was, why don't they kill themselves? That was my go-to solution.
1: And did you try to do that?
2: Uh, The first time I was four, I tried to take my life. And people think that's ridiculous, but my mom can remember, and I remember I was told that if I was given these baby aspirin, and she said, never take these because they will kill you. And I did. I took them all because I wanted to die. And again, when I was seven, I laid in the snow and decided I was just going to freeze to death and I was just never going to wake up. But then I had to go to the bathroom so bad I, and I realized if I wet myself, my mom would kill me, which is ironic, hmm. but um, I, I didn't at that time. And then when I was 14, I took uh, like two full adult bottles of aspirin adult aspirin, and I remember just taking them by the handful and swallowing them. And this was after the um, abuse had stopped, or I had stopped it or whatever. I'd I'd realized that, oh my goodness, it's over. And I was left with me, and I couldn't take it. So I tried to do that, and I vomited all night long and in the morning, my mom asked me what, you know, what was going on, and I just told her that I was sick, and she took me to the ER. It must have been a Saturday because it was an ER instead of a doctor, and the doctor asked me if I had taken an overdose of aspirin because I guess I had a ringing in my ears, and I had all the symptoms of having overdosed, and I lied and said no because, again, my mother would have killed me. And the, the odd thing is, is two adult bottles of aspirin, because she would, you know, get them like buy one, get one free, and they were missing. So why did she never notice that? I don't know. I mean, again, it was a, she was going through a hell of her own. And so she didn't pick up on things like maybe someone else might have. Mm-hmm. I don't blame her at all at all. I love her. She's still alive. Um, and she supports me in what I'm doing. She allowed me to write the book, even though she's not in the best light, because she is not a perfect person. You know, none of us are. But she was for the book. And so I'm, I'm proud of her. I'm, I love my mom a lot.
1: That's actually one thing I was going to ask you about was your mother. Where was she during this? Now, I understand what you're saying now, and there has definitely been forgiveness, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But -hmm. what were you going through as a little girl watching your mom, I'm assuming, allow this? And tell us a little bit about that and how you dealt with that.
2: I do not believe my mom knew it was going on, although she should have. He had molested three neighbor girls, who had been my mom's friends, and they had loved being around us and the kids, or my sister and i and and my mom, and then they just stopped coming by, and my mom found out why, and so she knew he was capable, so she never should have left me with him alone on Sundays or when she went to the groceries or ever leave me alone with him and so those were the times that it happened and uh, but I to her credit. One, the night, it it was the last night that it happened and I was saying no very loudly and in the morning she asked me what it was about and terrified I just said he tried to get fresh with me. That's what they called it back then. I was terrified but she believed me and she let, let into him and he did say all the things that he said he would say, that I asked for it, that I seduced him, really? that I asked for it. And and she never, she just said that she didn't believe anything he was saying, that he, she couldn't believe he would ever do something like that with his own daughter, which told me that was the first I learned about the other girls. So, yeah, she, so I can't say that she didn't believe me. And, and after that, It stopped in a way. It just changed. The abuse started being mental and emotional. When I had a boyfriend and I would look out the window to see if he was walking by, he would say I was acting like a dog in heat. And even in the summer wearing a quilted robe and curlers in my hair and no makeup, he would say that I was teasing him. So everything was sexual. Everything was... I was just like this awful person, you know, and I was the reason that my mom was cold to him now. And I was just, I mean, it was just awful.
1: And you believed it. I did. So your father is no longer living.
2: Right. Um, That's another story. I was, I met my husband when I was 16 and I thought he was a bad hoodlum. And uh, smoking, getting kicked out of school, <laughs> bad student. And my best friend told me when I asked her what his name was, she says, oh, Roxanne, you do not want to get, you know, even know him. He, that's Tom Foley. And he never dates the same girl twice. And I told her I was going to marry him. Other boyfriends, is the minute they liked me, I would drop them. I just didn't want anyone that could like me. Mm. And Tom, he never... Um, let me know whether he liked me or not. And my mom said he wrote the book on how to get get me because he kept me in in doubt all the time. He was the kind of person that well, the first time in, back in that day, he had an 8-track tape player and when I went to change the channel, he slapped my hand. Oh. And I figured, okay, you know, this is good and and um Yeah, he, he, but every time he learned something good to do, he kept doing it. Where other guys are all on their best behavior and then they slack off, Tom Mm. just kept getting better and better. And he was my, he was, God made him for me.
1: And you were dating him through high school then?
2: We, he was already out of school, graduated when I was 16. He's two years older. And then I moved to live with my grandmother just to survive, Mm. and he would see me twice a week by going out there to see her. Then I graduated. I worked for a year to save money for our wedding, and then we got married right when I was 18, right before I, two months before I turned 19, I, my my dad had turned into a shriveled old man by then. He looked probably set in his 70s. He knew he was only 44. And he was weak and frail and sick. Uh, I, Tom and I had saved his life twice from vomiting blood. He was told if he ever had another drink, he would die. And not to come to the doctor if he did, because the doctor had better things to do than treat somebody who was wanting to die, which... Played into my mentality about uh-huh. getting help. Uh-huh. And um, then he asked me, I was engaged to be married and it was in the paper and I had put my, my picture, Roxanne Moran, daughter of Maxine Moran, and I'd left his name out altogether. Uh-huh. And I had not invited him, but somebody must have said, your daughter's getting married, you know, and he called. And back in the day, you only had one phone in the house. Right. And I was walking by when it it rang, and I answered it was him. And he said, so where do I get my tux for the wedding? And I go, you don't. You have no right to give me away, and you're not invited to the wedding. This is one day you're not going to ruin. And he didn't say a word. He hung up. And the next day was Friday. He went to work, cashed his check, bought five bottles of wine, drank them all, and he was found dead. He died that night, and he was found not until Monday when he didn't show up for work.
1: Now, how did that affect you?
2: I knew I'd killed him. Yeah. Because when we went to the apartment to get his belongings, my engagement picture had been cut out of the paper and was sitting in the chair next to him, laying on the table in the chair next to him. And
1: how long did it take you, and what kind of? Uh, coping skills did you use at that point to get over that, or did was it a quick recovery?
2: When my mom told me that he had been found dead, I was at the nursing home, and I went into a bathroom and cried, and I remember thinking, why are you crying? This is good, you know, but mm-hmm. it was just so confusing. <laughs> I I don't, to this day, know why I cried. Was I crying for relief, or did I know that I had done it? I didn't even ask her how he died. <laughs> You know, I just, she just said, George is dead. She didn't say your dad. She just said, George is dead. And that was it. I cried. And I don't know why. And at the funeral, we were in this side room and everybody, all his students were coming up to the, his casket and crying. And I'm just, no, huh? no, I, I thought we were put in a side room so that people couldn't see how indifferent we were. Oh, Really? I didn't realize that we, that was so that we could have the privacy to grieve. I just thought they were like <laughs> I don't know. And in the the limousine, my brother was talking about the stereos. I mean, there was just no grieving going on at all from anyone. So um, I felt that I co- I couldn't show any feelings because I wanted to fit in with my family. Mm.
1: And how many were in your family?
2: I have um, an old, a four-year-older brother, a four-year-younger brother, and my sister is just 16 months older.
1: And were they abused as well?
2: They were very abused um, physically, but my sister has gone through every kind of thought examination she can and she has no recollection of any sexual abuse on her own only that you know he was very cruel to her Mm. and she she was heavy and so not heavy she was never heavy she was plump but in my mind Mm -hmm. that told me that she was protected if i hadn't if i had been plump because all the the books say the older daughter is the one that is targeted and Mm. And since I didn't fit the MO, there must be a reason. And the reason must be uh-huh. because she was plumper and I wasn't, she was never heavy ever. And, but in my mind, right. I, I built all that, I put on all, all this fat. I mean, I gained 80 pounds in six months after I was married. And I wasn't pregnant. I just put it on because I wanted to be. Put a barrier between us. I wanted to be unattractive, <laughs> and and uh, to my husband and to others because I I felt like I brought out the beast in men. You know, I just mm. any time anybody came on to me, I felt I owe, owed them to follow through because it was my fault.
1: Now you said that the first uh, thirty five years or so of your marriage was unhappy, right? Um, And how did your husband cope with everything that was going through? He obviously loved you. He did. And how did he, did he try to talk to you? Did he just, you know, stay aloof? I mean, how did he handle that stressful situation?
2: When we married, I, he, he knew immediately something was wrong because I woke up. I think crying and stuff in the morning and I just was not, I had changed. I probably Mm. changed and, and uh, he knew something was very wrong, but um, then, you know, he was so happy when I wanted children and that was an opportunity. I wanted children. And so I had sex like four times <laughs> and I didn't get pregnant, and it was just ridiculous. I was, i thought if you had sex, you'd get pregnant, and I didn't. And okay, you weren't—you weren't,
1: weren't taught—you weren't taught. You just no. made these assumptions. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. How, my question was: How did your husband handle what you were going through?
2: He—he he was kind, and he was patient. He, he, he loved who I was when others were around. He saw that that was who I really was. Mm. And then he was able to just have grace for the person I was who was all prickly and, and, and cruel trying to keep him away. Mm. But when I, I said I needed counseling, the first counselor was going to cure me by being inappropriate with me giving me a positive sexual experience. Oh. And so I told Tom I needed a counselor, a Christian, and a woman. And he found one. And I went to her, and one of the first things she said I needed to do was tell Tom about the abuse because at this point he had no idea. Oh, I didn't realize that. He had no idea about any of that. And, I, and it had only just started coming back to me from this man counselor who I was losing weight and all these things feelings were coming up I was scared to lose weight and I shared that and he said you've been sexually abused you need to see me for free and then you know I he yeah then it went there but he opened this can of worms and they were Mm -hmm. crawling all over me and I couldn't get the top back on and I knew I couldn't go to him because where it was leading and so i said i need a woman christian counselor and he found her and and he she said you have to tell him i said i can't because he thought i was a pure mm-hmm. christian girl and i'm not and he'll he'll leave me and and so she said you have to tell him and okay so I can barely get the words out. I'm bawling. I don't know how he understands me. But his reaction was to get on his knees, put his head in my lap, and say how relieved he was. Because he thought all that time that I had found him repulsive. Mm -hmm. And that it was him. He said, I thought it was me. I thought it was me. And it just breaks my heart. Of course. (laughs) And he's just... Such a wonderful person and the best father that a child could have. And I'm so thankful that my children had such a wonderful father. And I I mean, I've had him for it's going on 44 years this July. (laughs) And I only had a horrible monster father for 18, you know. So I just, I've gotten the best deal. God just made him special and full of grace, kind and able to see who I could have been. I mean, I I prayed for him. I wanted to die so he could have a good wife. I did. That was one of my main, you need to die so that Tom can have a wonderful wife. He deserves a wonderful wife. So um, I never dreamed in a million years that the answer to my prayer would actually be me.
1: So tell us about that transition now you mentioned that you stopped believing the lies how did that happen
2: it was a, a cumulative effect between coming to know the lord and then having a christian psychiatrist and and then another and then going through dbt the end result was dbt which is Dialectic Behavioral Therapy. It happened to be, I got it through Kalamazoo's Interact of Michigan, but it can be found anywhere. Dialectic Behavioral Therapy, or DBT, is a type of therapy in which lies are exposed to truth. And even though it's not a Christian therapy, I found for the 28 tools it taught, Bible verses to go with every single one Mm -hmm. so truth is truth right and and for instance I went through this curriculum and they came to this page and it was true or false questions and I I looked at it and thought what is this a joke they're all true you know (laughs) and uh they were all lies really and so Give the, us an that, example,
1: if you can remember.
2: Well, I'll, this this the next six months, you went through the same curriculum, and that page came up again. And I knew they were all false, but one of them still looked true. And that one, I remember it was, if people really knew you, they would hate you. Mm-hmm. And I still was believing that. So it was just statements like that. Right, okay. And then they made you rewrite them. and. And so I had to write down if people really knew that you, they would love you anyway, and it just was like irked me how I didn't know how to do that, but because it was just so not what I believed, but i I did write it, and um that was the a beginning it was the beginning
1: and so through time, you were able to come into the realis- full realization. Mm-hmm. That what you have believed most of your life and sure you are not alone
2: mm-hmm. was
1: actually not true. And you needed to replace those lies with truth, Truth, which is what uh, the exercises that you did. Mm-hmm. So what happened um, to Roxanne during this? How did she
2: change? She learned that she had all the answers inside of her. But she wasn't able to apply them to herself because she felt she was an exemption because she liked it. So nothing would apply to her.
1: Really?
2: And then I, was, I heard a woman give her testimony that she was a horrible person who deserved to die because when she was raped, she had an orgasm. And I could see <laughs> that that was not true. That she her body just did what God made it to do
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then then, at that moment, god said why don 't you why can 't you receive that that 's true for you too and it, that was like a turning point oh, so
1: the light came on
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i one of the tools was a non judgmental stance towards yourself and others. And, and, and if you wouldn't say it to a friend or someone you love, you shouldn't say it to yourself. And I had a horrible self-talk going on in my mind. And I had to learn how to, if I, you know, to talk lovingly to myself, which was not easy because I'd never done it. But mm. with practice, you can learn. And, and you,
1: turn, you turn self-hatred into self-love.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Which sounds like... You know, even with the early religions that I was in, self-love is is like a horrible thing. You know, it's not good. You, you, it's not humble. And, and uh-uh. so I had everything telling me not to love myself, you know, and it was all twisted. It's really, the truth is, you can't really love anyone else until you love yourself.
1: <laughs> That's huge. That is absolutely mm-hmm. huge, and it's something that a lot of people have had to learn. I'm mm-hmm. glad you brought that up.
2: I, ha- I did have to become a victim in order to become a survivor, and I am now a huge proponent for being a victim. There is no stigma that should be attached to being a victim. No one should be ashamed of being a victim. No victim should be blamed for what the- all shame should be to the perpetrators. A victim would not be a victim unless someone victimized them. That's not their fault. And so I am, I am just like, people are afraid to be victims because there's a judgment out there on victims, and that has to be gone because I want everyone who's been victimized to come forward and say, this happened to me and it was wrong so that the perpetrators will be stopped. If more perpetrators get away with it so much because the victims stay quiet because they don't want to say what happened to them because of the shame attached, that all has to stop. That and that's all, all part of the lie, isn't it? Yes. Yes. I like
1: yep. that. Had to You had to become a victim in order to become a survivor.
2: Yep. Yep.
1: That is a profound statement. Excellent. So this... Brought a complete metamorphosis to your marriage.
2: Yes. Oh, my goodness. It it was just, like, so amazing because I was able to allow him to enjoy me, but I still was not able to enjoy him because it physically hurt. So, I went to see a a, um, urologist thinking that maybe my body, there was something wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, sh- sure enough, uh, he sent me to physical therapy on my vagina. <laughs> <laughs> and I had only five sessions, but I, she said, when something hurts, you tense up, which makes it hurt more, worse. And so she taught me to relax. And it has not hurt since. It has not hurt since. So he, I was able to let him enjoy me and without it hurting that was a huge thing but I was still not able to have an orgasm myself I hope that's not too personal but in order to because I would go zooming back into time and feel like I needed to die immediately that was just something that would happen that just went with that feeling was I gotta die and so I didn't want to have anything to do with being receiving that pleasure so I but everything else was allowed in the hugging and kissing and I, that was wonderful. Then we went to a love after marriage seminar and uh at our church and a lot of uh confessing and a prayer happened and ever since then I have been able to receive pleasure without going back and anything being triggered I'm just totally we are totally one. And that's just been 2 years ago. So It just, you know, so we had like seven years of harmony and then now we've had bliss added.
1: (laughs) And that is an amazing story to be, because you are not alone, Roxanne. I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that needs to be shared and needs to be talked about there are so many women and men who go through so many things that they don't understand and mm-hmm. end up hurting themselves and hurting their partner and it's not what they want to do at all and not even being happy that is excellent that you brought that that up so, i put that
2: in the book because i'm like there might be other people yes who yes are, are, you didn't know that there is a physical therapy for your vagina the mm-hmm. healing
1: process it doesn't happen overnight no and you went through a very long healing process and but you are living in the wholeness now i am and that's where you choose to live and thank you for that clarification okay human trafficking yes this is your passion you want and explain where that came from and how you are involved if you are and what message you want to share
2: publishing process was ridiculous I did not want to write my book but God wanted me to write it and he's the his reason was I wasn't the only one believing this lie that I liked it and so he, that is why I called it that and I said but I, I I it didn't feel right to profit from something so horrible and he said then give it away and he opened every door he got me the publisher fivefold media he i don't know how to type a friend told me about a dragon and so i voice typed the whole thing you know a program on the computer so i mean just every roadblock i put up mm. he took down and then and and my publisher um Andy Sanders said why don't you find someone locally that you can that can benefit from your Book, And so I found the Kalamazoo Anti-Human Trafficking Coalition and Sarah Morley LaCroix had started that after listening to a woman who had been trafficked, a Leslie King, and she said, what can I do? And she said, just do something. And Hmm. Sarah has since, I mean, we've made a huge impact in in Michigan with the laws and everything and, and raising awareness and I I knew that one of the thing one some of the girls that were believing the lie were not just the abused girls but the girls that were being trafficked right now today and what the things they tell themselves to survive are that it's their idea they want to do that this is what they're good at this is what they were made for yeah. and these are how they survive and those very things that are how they survive are going to work against them if they're rescued, if they get out of it to be rehabilitated. They're going to be saying, but I liked it, but I, this is what I, all I'm good for. And those same things that they tell themselves are going to be awful to them, and I just want them to, to have those lies exposed now so that they don't have to be in their 50s before they realize the truth and wish there had been one book that I had found when I did all my Hmm. researching where someone had even hinted that they might have liked it it might have gotten me and and so that's basically why I I did write the book I'm not afraid to talk about it and promote it because I'm not benefiting so I don't feel like I'm being (laughs) self-serving although I'm writing another book and I will have no problem promoting or earning money off of it
1: and what kind of book is that going to be
2: I uh it's going to be a fiction based on a true story. I had an eight-year friendship with a paraplegic man who had locked-in syndrome who could only communicate by looking up for yes and down for no. Hmm. And we had an eight-year friendship. And uh, he, we sort of started writing the book together. He died five years ago. He named it. It's called Knock, Knock, I'm Here. Oh. And that's because people treated him like he wasn't. Right. And uh it's gonna be funny and touching and it has a really surprise ending. And when it is like, that
1: when is that due to come out? Or are you just in the middle of writing it?
2: I'm in the middle of writing it. Okay. So we we'll look quite we'll we'll look a few forward chapters to that. Done. Okay.
1: Yeah. And your book is available on Amazon
2: amazon and barnes and noble online and um it's in the libraries in our area
1: anything else you want to share to whether it's to the audience or or um just as a word of encouragement or if you want to share any more about what you see in your future or anything you want to
2: there's one thing that i haven't touched on that i would feel bad that i left out and that is the i had wanted to put on um But I liked it in other lives, overcoming the shame of sexual abuse and the stigma of mental illness. Because I was plagued with depression my entire adult life and, and, you know, suicidal attempts and all that. And having to leave churches because even though they would pray for someone who had a heart attack, if you were hospitalized for a mental breakdown, that was only whispered about. Mm -hmm. And I felt I couldn't, you know, so I want to get rid of the stigma of mental Mm. illness. And um, I, and that's really important to me. I had over 50 electroconvulsive therapy treatments or what people call shock therapy. Mm -hmm. And um, I was on every medicine under the sun and really none of it I only submitted to the shock therapy because there was the risk of dying and I really wanted to die without taking my own life because I didn't want to leave a legacy like my dad left. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just wanted to be put out of my misery so bad. It's just I just want people to know that they, they can be that bad and then come out on the other side and love life, hurt, and feel pain, but I never hate myself or wish I was dead or plan to die but never ever do I want to die there is life after <laughs> mental illness is what I'm saying and that was important to yes you, to bring it across and most people think it's a joke when they go but I liked it in other lives they their first reaction oh is I lie. see really yeah and then they go what's it about and I go overcoming the shame of sexual abuse and I just hate to see the trans <laughs> transformation of their face to like oh I really just you know so it's like I don't know it it, I guess it sort of sounds funny if you don't know what it's about but I liked it in other lives I mean I I think it's it's intriguing
1: I think it definitely is an intriguing title you covered a lot of area and I think you brought hope and encouragement to someone because there's you know very well that there's at least one person listening today who has gone through something similar Mm -hmm. and every time we share our stories we touch the heart of that one person or possibly many and that's what this is all about time to reach out and ask for help to get help there is help exactly and that is the underlying message not denying what you've gone through but knowing no. that things can change so that you can have a better life you said yes. many things and the the um your passion of helping um women who have gone through this whole uh traffic you know the anti human trafficking i mean mm-hmm. that is a huge benefit to your book sales to what you are doing and i think we should encourage people to buy your book just for that if nothing else but they're also getting a win-win in that they get to read a phenomenal story from a beautiful woman who Mm -hmm. is a survivor we want to encourage people buy the book which is but I liked it and other lies thank you Roxanne you have been motivating inspiring and I sincerely
2: appreciate you for what you shared today well thank you very much Carol thank you for having me